Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. Evan Calder Williams began exploring his ideas on post-apocalyptic thinking and politics in the blog Socialism and or Barbarism. Since then, his work has expanded in two books, numerous essays as well as films. He is part of the editorial collective of Viewpoint magazine and the founding member of the film collective 13 Black Cats. In the following episode, the first of two conversations with Evan Calder Williams, He talks about how his ideas of Salvatsbank and the Apocalypse have evolved over time, his thorough study on the history of sabotage as a practice, and the impact of established visions in our collective thinking. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I am Jens Orespo Adimitriou. This episode was recorded in lockdown mode. Evan Calder Williams, welcome to the Archipelago. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's been 10 years since you wrote, uh, since you published Combined and Uneven Apocalypse. Uh, and I'd like to start our conversation with this. Uh, is capitalism still heading for uh, the apocalypse? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I've got many things to say. I guess a way into that would be saying that I feel like... Um, what has sort of stayed with me of that book. And I think what, you know, some people who've, who've um, read it and who it's been something to, you know, has actually been, you know, an insistence that uh, we need to perhaps move away from this very category of the apocalypse uh, and instead to kind of think multiply. I mean, in that book, obviously it takes the shape a little bit of a, of a sort of um, a pun or a riff off of combined and uneven development. But I think, you know, the core of it more generally is just, um, to work with a sense that uh, a reliance upon a certain kind of spectacular kind of eventality, right? A sort of notion of a, of a visibility of the thing to come um, in many ways radically disconnects from, um, I would say, the sort of the structure of the geographical distribution of conditions we would recognize as, ap recognize as apocalypse. I think, um, 
you know, the structures, the sort of feedback loops uh, of the way in which cultural imaginaries are, are, are transformed and inherit new modes and are perhaps sort of haunted by, by ones not at their choosing. You know, I think for me in the years since I wrote it, um, if I was to, to do it again, it would obviously be different in the way that any book is. But I think particularly one of the elements that's become especially striking to me is the the fundamental disconnect um, between, let's say, certain versions of, of the the lag, the ecological lag, and the consequences, let's say, of the the human transformation. Um, I mean, we could say anthropocene as shorthand, but I sort of always hate that word. Um, but of the sort of you know human transformation of of, um, of world conditions in some regard, the lag between um, between this sort of continual uneven uh, unfolding of that, and in some sense a notion of political urgency of a sort of need to act now. You know, I think squaring that remains uh, an enormous difficult political task, but in some regards, I think moving away from a certain logic of, of urgency or of the visibility of effects would be important. And that's something in, in more recent years I've been really trying to write about, of thinking also about the consequences of the kinds of imagery, let's say, particularly images, what, what Gunther Anders would talk about as warning images that are thought in some sense to be potent enough, um, let's say the Amazon on fire, uh, the highway flooded, etc., that in some sense would work to, to sort of shock one into action. And I'm really interested in thinking about the way in which um, particularly the sort of um, aesthetic uh, elements of those, the way in which they also are meant to, to circulate and be retweeted and be engaged with and as part of this sort of neurological and libidinal flow in some sense um, maybe runs really counter to their intended purpose to, to, to foretell a coming apocalypse. So a lot more I could say, maybe I'd start with, with that in, in a sense for me, that, um, you know, as I suggested, capitalism has always been apocalyptic, but not perhaps in the way that um, most of its apologists would have wanted to suggest might be a future condition. The way you actually have um, described the apocalypse and the way it has been uh, interpreted after that and the way it has been used, as you're saying, uh, it, it made me recall one of the one of the terms that I've encountered in uh, Greek Marxist literature. I don't know mm. if it's an international term. It's called catastrophism, and it's this tendency of uh, Marxist theorists for more than a century to always uh, assume that uh, uh, you know capitalism is about to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, this uh, Uh, this idea that you find uh, again and again. Do you think that this whole notion of the Anthropocene is similar to that? That's an interesting question. Yeah, and indeed, I'm, I'm familiar with the term, and I, and I think you're, you're hitting on it sort of contradictions, you know, directly. I feel like sometimes the term um, some t is more casually used now to suggest a sort of, yeah, <laughs> let's say a Marxism or also certain varieties of the kind of cross-pollination and anarchist and Marxist thought that uh, not only expects this sort of imminent collapse to come, but in some sense depends upon it, right? In some sense politically hinges on the kind of crisis to come, or actually to, to be more technical with my own language in the book, um, yeah, specifically a catastrophe to come, not a sort of cyclical crisis that reveals its own contradictions. So, you know, in terms of something like the Anthropocene, the way in which that's used, yeah, I think it depends on the degree to which one can fully take on a sense, again, that there will be no sort of visible point that suddenly crosses a threshold catastrophe visible to all. One would have to instead think really seriously about um, the mechanisms that slowly normalize 
conditions that might be otherwise seen as catastrophic. Think here of the kind of increasing recurrence of hurricanes, the, the slow creeping up of that. Um, a friend of mine, Sabu Koso, a really remarkable um, Japanese um, um, anarchist and organizer and, and thinker, um, has a really important new book called Radiation and Revolution. And, you know, a point that, that I've really learned from Sabu and thought a lot about, you know, is an analog we can take from, from something like um, radioactivity in which, you know, again, there, there, there is no sudden uh, visible sort of stark split into what then is lethal, right? Into what sort of generates um, uh, mutation, into which generates um, death at, at variant speeds, you know? And instead we need to account for um, the processes and, and, you know, the difficult labor of trying to give visibility to, in some sense, um, the slow kind of creep uh, of these things. And, and I could come back to the word creeping later. It's something I've written a lot about. But, um, but you know, we have to think between the visibility of those things that perhaps doesn't come and has to be fought for. And on the other hand, again, you know, very particular um, institutional, often sort of state-backed tendencies to increasingly treat conditions as part of a threshold that is now normal right that is tolerable so yeah i think it's 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 a kind of struggle over how much we can dislodge um the assumption of shock and take more seriously kind of perhaps slower or more tangled forms uh of of the sort of unmaking of what might be seen as a kind of um adequate or flourishing life now you know this book came out uh, at the time when um, Occupy was happening. It was the mm -hmm. year of the movement of the squares in Greece. Uh, there were the London riots that also Mark Friesen had written that uh, famous piece Autonomy in the UK back then. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a time of optimism, I think, for most uh, thinkers. Yet you proposed that at that time that we view the world as a you know as a barren wasteland uh, <laughs> where the apocalypse has already happened. Uh, would you say that that the decade that followed you that followed might have proved you right in a sense that you didn't Ooh, say I, hope, I, I hope not <laughs> no i i mean uh it's a it's a it's an astute point you know and one thing i would say um and we'll see, you know it, it's it's perhaps up to to people who, who've read it to, to see the degree to which it sort of follows through on this but there's a way for me in which you know one of the other things that that book was committed to doing was um separating something like um you know, a, 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 well, we could say about kind of pessimism, that term, but in some sense, let's say separating a proper accounting for this sense, as you've suggested, of, of the wasteland, um, you know, my suggestion in some sense of, of um, you know, a catastrophe that, that has come uh, of, a, of a sort of breaking down that is, that is omnipresent, but to separate that from, in some sense, a, a version of, um, of a loss of momentum. You know, in many sense, for me, one of the core arguments was that if we shift away from, as you're rightly describing, a catastrophism predicated on the what is to come, and instead think of forms of activity that will never be given license by something that clear, then in many ways, for me, that changes the stakes about something like activity and present or the notion of urgency or the sort of time scales of revolt right and so in some sense you know i know also because you raised mark you know the, the certain question of, of joy obviously can be present in this as well too you know and i think that i would just you know my, my core formulation in there is that if we see apocalypse as, as uneven and ongoing in some regard then what follows from that is um sort of having no excuse for for waiting and to take really seriously, you know, processes, uh, processes of, of insurgence and uprising as not prefigurative, but themselves constitutive of, right, um, sort of slow ongoing processes of, of human freedom. Um, but, you know, 
I can say all that and also recognize that we, it's so hard to not think of, um, think of years, think of decades, particularly the odd marker of the decade, uh, you know, outside of sequences of struggle and, and what seems to kind of rise and fall. But I, you know, speaking in the context of the U S of course, we can obviously think of the, we can narrate with the years of Trump. We can also narrate, you know, and give centering to, you know, some of the most consequential um, uprisings um, against white supremacy and the structures that uphold it. So maybe it's a question, I think, in each um, national or anti-national situation we think about, about what leads the narration, right? How much do we want to speak in a tragic register? <laughs> So, so you think that what um, what made these political forms that emerged in the beginning of the decade that what made them not to flourish was their their narrative? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we also again have to you know deal with the reckonings of real consequences of, of active oppression of the difficulties of sustaining movements. But you know, I'll, maybe this also has to do with um, the kind of shift you know that I'm interested in or that underpins that book. Of course, much of that book is is about the consequences of, of cultural memory. Um, you know, including from things like blockbuster films and very cheap <laughs> and non-blockbuster films. But you know, a side of it as well too. You know, if we take the example of of, of something like. Um, like Occupy and maybe giving the New York example, uh, something that I think a lot about and and think remains really meaningful, you know, is the way in which um, if we separate that away from any sort of imaginary about, you know, uh, goals or set demands, which of course, you know, has been a, the, 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 the refusal of that, I think has been an important, you know, and constitutive aspect of, um, you know, of a lot of, Uh, yeah, broadly sort of anti-state rebels, you know, in the U.S. And, and elsewhere with comrades I speak to. But if we fully sort of move away from that and think instead about um, the really dense um, network of and difficult to form one of, of protection, uh, you know, what does it mean to hold a space against police, right? What are the sort of infrastructures, often the really non-spectacular forms of, of, uh, of, of network, of aid, of, of kind of ground support that you need to hold something like that? There's a way in which, for me, that attempt, in some sense, to, to put forward, to manifest in public, to be present, brings with it really complicated but vital questions um, about the production of something Um, like, uh, you know, a sort of being together to, to be a little bit, I guess, abstract about it, you know, it, doing something like that forms this really dense network, you know, and in the context of, of the U.S., I would say that the way in which the, that same sort of dense network of, of aid, support, you know, and protection also um, went into then, you know, uh, secondary, or secondary, I mean, in time, but efforts like Occupy Sandy, right, in terms of literal sort of disaster relief, you know, beyond state disaster relief, that for me really signifies that there's a way in which, it, you know, taking seriously activities in the present um, and thinking about what allows them to sustain is also a kind of vital shift away that also maybe gets us out of this easy split between the utopian or the dystopian or the promising and the bleak uh, and, and instead take seriously, um, yeah, a sort of... Uh, Um, an agency that too often has, I, I would say, historically been sort of removed from the category of what's even allowed to count as political in the first place. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to the spectacular in a bit. Um, for now, I'd like to, uh, because it's uh, one of the things you're working on in, in more detail, as far as I know. Um, but uh, I had uh, Matt Cohoon on the on this show uh, a few episodes back. It was one of the first episodes we did. And this was uh, right around the time when uh, uh, he actually brought back uh, uh, Salvage Punk, proposing it 
that's a cultural practice for today, com uh, compared, contrasting it actually, to what he called the hontography. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, he says uh, he uh, he mentioned this one old tricks point never uh, music video that came out, uh, which had an iPhone in an 80s setting, uh, where he he told me that this isn't the uh, he wrote that this is the this isn't the present aping the past. This is the past confronting a future it couldn't pro possibly have foreseen. Uh, and he also added that, uh, you know, uh, his proposition for salvage punk came uh, with the idea that if there is no outside, we can't completely, we, we can't start completely afresh. Now, uh, how have new takes uh, on your work influenced your own understanding of uh, salvage punk? Yeah, that's a, it's interesting, um, you know, and, and it's uh, striking that you mentioned Matt raising, you know, one of Trick's point never, because actually, you know, some of the the takes that I've seen people most sort of pick up with it, you know, has actually been in the context of music, um, you know, and particularly thinking about also things that might otherwise be put in the framework of sort of, you know, as as Mark Fisher would around sort of ontology and, and musical kind of practice. So, yeah, there's been a really, I think, um, I've had interesting encounters and read some interesting takes uh, around specifically kind of music uh, that's been interesting to think about, um, how would you put it, uh, experiential and cultural and aesthetic consequences of salvage punk that aren't reducible to like salvage aesthetics, you know what I mean? And in the way that when I wrote the book, I was both obviously interested in, but, but immensely suspicious of, you know, and I think that, um, uh, there's been a way from the start where I've always found the term slightly embarrassing. Um, Victor Shklovsky sort of has this great account of how when, when he launches the, the puts into the world the, the, the term of sort of ostalini, of, of sort of estrangement or defamiliarization, there's essentially a kind of, uh, uh, he kind of misspelled it. He misspelled his own neologism. And he says it was kind of like doomed to wander the earth like a dog with one ear. Um, <laughs> it's a great line. But, I, you know, I, I, there's a way for me in which towards the question, like this sort of punk of salvage punk has been a side that I've always, you know, at times found teetering dangerously into this sort of cutesy or, you know, or, or into aesthetics that I actually think are way too open to co-optation. You know, that's something that China Mievel and I were really aware of and, and suspicious about from the beginning, you know, when we began more working explicitly around this idea was an awareness of, you know, just how rapaciously, uh, you can say, you know, processes of capital and cultural capital uh, will recuperate even an image of its own breakdown, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one side of it. But I would say that, you know, in terms of other um, takes that feedback towards it, um, you know, both in my own continued work on the idea and in, in some um, work and, and syllabi that, that have included this work, you know, I've really become more interested, I think, in this question uh, of salvage, of, of what kind of operation and transformation that names, rather than in some sense, um, a certain kind of work I was trying to do originally of identifying um, a cultural and perhaps sort of historical mode we might call sort of salvage punk. <laughs> now you know. Apart from you, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Sainam Neville because he's a uh, you know he's one of the most uh, uh, prolific, maybe or innovative uh, science fiction authors uh, yeah. nowadays. And, and I'm thinking that most of theory, not only yours, not only your take on Salva uh, Salva uh, most of the theory nowadays actually builds on uh, science fiction. Uh, mm -hmm. Could this actually be working against, uh, you know, theory itself? The, the fact that it tends to be limited uh, very often to, you know, this, uh, this cultural field, this broad and very diverse and very, you know, very big nowadays uh, field of science fiction. 
Yeah, well, I mean, indeed, there's a way in which, you know, we also have to account for, um, you know, thinking particularly in the US, although this is by no means unique to it, you know, something like um, that we would have to call loosely, uh, even if in a mass form, sort of, sci you know, science fiction, speculative fiction, but thing particularly here, kind of Marvel films, you know, this literally is the dominant, these are the most profitable dominant cultural productions, period. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's in some sense, we have to see it not as a the very, the, you know, a category of things like nerdy genres is so far from this. These are sort of titans of capital. So, you know, indeed, I think there's a... Um, one of the things you're posing is something that's very important to me, or I would want to say implicitly within this, is there's a way in which... Um, if well, let me say this first there's a way in which i think sometimes um reliance upon discernible um content we might recognize as speculative or ontological fill in the blank you know we could think of variant permutations but that we might identify as thinking towards problems of futurity right thinking the recursivity of the past etc um if those are primarily treated as a content to be found in science fiction i think that can both reinforce forms of of um reading of cultural works that hinge still way too much in a kind of vague ideology critique, like post-Zizek way, on just interchangeable sets of circumstances and themes. And don't think about the much kind of messier ways um, in which they work, um, you know, technically, formally, but also the, the kind of um, uh, ecologies, let's say, of sort of attention and circulation that they exist in. So, yeah, I think like, I'm. I find myself um, more and more wanting to. If we take an example of something like 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 science fiction, you know, I want to think not so much about what scenario it puts forward, but the way in which that is or is not sort of um, written and told itself. You know, so I, I think that kind of shift for me is vital, um, rather than just yeah, sort of what can become a sort of play of um, relatively interchangeable. Um, speculative scenarios mm -hmm. actually the, this uh, what you just said makes for an interesting commentary of uh, you know another distinction that uh, Matt Cohoon made uh, here that was uh, you know uh, the what ca what actually uh, can uh, how the way we can discern um, salvage punk from uh, pastis might be exactly the messy ways in which the elements come together You know, the fact, yeah. what you also mentioned in your book back that was, uh, you know, uh, they are wielded together or they are, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really, um, you know, this is really sort of important for me, you know, and I would, I would note two things, you know, on the one hand, I feel like, you know, as a, as a, a thinker um, in general, you know, I remain really committed to a form of thinking that, you know, Stuart Hall, for instance, would, would speak of as articulation, right? And for, and for Hall to think about articulation is to think about, um, sort of coming together a unity of different elements, but, you know, within specific conditions, um, you know, and, and crucially for him, you know, this suggests uh, a form of kind of binding that is not, it's not natural, it's not automatic, it's not given, it's not permanent, right? And that for me is really, um, this is sort of one side that I always want to sort of account for. How is it that something we would even recognize um, as, let's say, an emerging um, ideological form? What are the distinct conditions that sort of feed into it? Because for me to like to um, to do that work is to place something into history, which also means that it can be taken out of history, right? I mean, that for me, there's a basic way in which if you can denaturalize, defamiliarize, and and see again the messy welds that go into the the weld. Take your pick. The you know the welds, the joins, the 
the aggregations that, that collectively add up to something that then can vanish into kind of normalcy or vanish into use. It can become an image, right? And by image, I mean a capture that can become unstuck from the processes that generate it. There's a way in which um, I think there's a necessary, continual necessary critical labor to insist on the prospect that it can be kind of taken apart again. So that's one side, but I, I would just also note, you know, around this um, uh, the difference from pastiche, which I do think is an important point that I, I, I stressed a fair amount, I feel like, or at least implicitly, you know, is through the book, um, is that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, you know, at the core of salvage is also um, a certain thinking around um, techniques and materiality um, and around the sort of um, cultural thickness of all of those um, elements in which I'm also really interested in... Um, the forms of possibility that come often from from an extremely deep and almost too intimate engagement, you know, with the material particularities of something that might otherwise um, be seen to be of no interest or already destroyed or already lost in some regard. So for me, there's a sort of focus on um, maybe you could say a breakdown between um, sign and matter uh, in some regard there, or or again, thinking again, of maybe this, this sense of a, something like a counter techniques that can take shape from the unexpected particularities that go into even um, an object or form um, that in some regard was designed largely to reinforce and replicate, um, you know, a a given social command or form or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'd also like to to ask about this in more, um, let's say, Marxist terms, because there is an element of this in your uh, analysis. I mean, you... Uh, when I when I first read it, it seemed to me like it was calling for a, a reappropriation of dead value in a, in a yeah. way. And I want to ask about the, the mechanics of this. How, uh, if you could elaborate on how the extraction of value from objects in this post-apocalyptic space works. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'm excited to talk about this. I yeah, <laughs> I largely teach in a uh, in a kind of art and curatorial studies context, so I don't get to talk about value as much anymore. Um, but yes, I am very interested, and in, and I would say that um, you know, one of the the backdrops to this work, or I guess not backdrops, uh, you know, kind of chronologically, but in terms of something I was thinking about at the same time, um, you know, is the way in which one even thinks about. Um, you know, the difference between something like um, like dead labor and living labor and the sort of dividing lines that get put into this as well as a kind of crucial sense of the way, you know, you get this, this thought in, in Marx and, 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 and after in some sense of this sort of... Um, taking your metaphor you want that you could think of the reanimation or the the reactivation um of of something like like dead labor uh, or frozen labor or as keston sutherland has drawn out i think really interestingly in a text on on the sense of this almost a congealed labor right that can't be kind of unfrozen um or you know in a kind of like thawed out and made exactly usable again so there's a couple um elements of this for me that are that are really interesting um one side um is is something I've thought a lot about in um, under the category of, of hostility, and particularly of the way in which um, we might think of, let's just put it simply, objects and commodities. You know, uh, as not simply um, you know bearers of, of complicated. Um, obviously sort of supply chains, material processes and processes of labor, but also in some sense, those that, that kind of bear the almost um, indiscernible, but, but sort of, um, 
yeah, kind of forensic charge of the, the, the huge frictions, antagonisms, um, you know, lonelinesses and loathing that, that go into most contemporary work. You know, I've been really interested to think about to what degree, um, what does it do to us, you could say, or, or how do we, what forms of activation do or do not happen um, when we grapple with the fact that almost every object we touch is a record um, of more or less direct coercion. So that's a question for me, you know, and, and it's something that I think uh, a, a certain attention to objects fully removed, even if speculatively from a circuit of value can kind of pose That's sort of one side of it. You know, I think um, the other side for me perhaps would be, uh, you know, and at the time I was thinking about this in terms of the category of something like breakdown in some regard, but we also, in the work I've done sort of since then would want to account for um, <laughs> the strange perhaps kind of value uh, that can even be, be reaccumulated out of that, which seemingly is a profound kind of loss of it. So in the work I've done more like as a kind of historian around salvage, um, you know, I was really struck by and picking up on accounts of the way in which um, sort of salvage operations uh, in the sense, even of literally kind of hauling a sunken ship from, um, you know, from the water came to be themselves, these profound sort of spectacles, right? These enormous sort of um, new draws to be seen. So, it's a, you know, it, there's a tricky element. I think we can think about the the forms of um, distinct materiality and, and peculiarity that can potentially be visible if something is, is sort of um, broken out of, of an assumption of exchange. On the other hand, of course, um, you know, it's only if we cling too much to kind of a, a strict material sense rather than thinking about the kind of cultural and symbolic work that can happen around these, that we can see these things as being capable of, of profoundly revalued again. You know, and, and it's something that I've, Largely, you know, I'm not working as much in the category of salvage, but in part, you know, uh, of I mentioned my my dislike of a certain um, version, sort of cultural image or aesthetic of it. But one of the things, of course, that's unmistakable is like the absolute sort of. Uh, oh God, sort of, I don't know, uh, architectural interior design dominance of a kind of vaguely salvage aesthetics, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like, I want to both, I want to be able to account for processes of revaluation while also accounting for, uh, you know, this sort of libidinal and political um, possibilities that that perhaps kind of crack a bit into view uh, if something is removed from circulation, um, even in, in thought. I don't know if that gets to, to what you're asking. But. No, it, it gets to what I'm asking, but also, you know, leads directly to the work you are doing uh, now on sabotage, the, the yeah. theory of sabotage, I, I think. And, and it's strange to me. I mean, when we think of sabotage, if you ask a Marxist, uh, they would think of terms of it, uh, in, they would think in terms of labor, you know, the workplace where the uh, the workers throw their shoes in the machine and, uh, and everything. If you ask someone who is not political, they will think of the saboteur as someone who crosses enemy lines. Uh, yeah. to, you know, uh, deal damage to enemy infrastructure. Uh, but no one would think, uh, you know, with your starting point, which is prison. <laughs> could, yeah. could you talk a bit about this? What is it about prison that relates to sabotage? Absolutely. Um, and and uh, this is some, a topic I could talk about for literally hours, because <laughs> my obsession <laughs> and, and my larger work um, around sabotage. But um, let me first make a, um, a broader comment about the thinking around there as a way to pass back into prison. You know, the, the very sense you noted of that drift of meaning, right, whether it's taken as indeed something particular to certain forms of factory insubordination, or to a largely a logic, you'd say, of sort of espionage or partisan warfare, or, you know, in contemporary sort of... Um, 
pop psychology, et cetera, the obsessive notion of self-sabotage. You know, there's a way for me in which these drifts are not accidental. A lot of the work I do is really genealogical. Uh, and I would say that was the same about the work about salvage, because I apparently love working on words that start with S and end with A-G-E. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but, um, but there's a way in which you know, sabotage, the, the very drift of the idea itself becomes almost a sort of um, uh, a, a sort of red thread or a red and black thread, if you want, in some sense, in which we can trace um, fundamental kind of shifts in a relation between structures of capital, um, forms of, you know, anti-imperial struggle, the degrees to which, let's say, uh, forms of, of assumed kind of productivity come to be internalized by humans. There's, you know, in a classical sort of post-Fordist account, there's a way in which sabotage's misuse, quote-unquote, as a term, follows exactly this. You know, there, there's a distinct path. It very quickly comes to be, um, you know, dislocated from a form uh, of, of, I would say, um, you know, taking the factory model, uh, you know, certain forms of uh, agency that don't meet a threshold of, of mass representation or kind of political representation, you know, very quickly enters into sort of anti-sedition and essentially early terror law. And I think that's because, you know, at the core of it, it's such a demonized, hated concept, including, you know, for most of its history by Marxists, by socialists, right? It's, it's such a demonized concept because it, I would suggest, um, ventures a fundamental thought about this very question of what is allowed to even count as political. You know, sabotage suggests a form of agency that is intimately routed through inhuman systems. And I'm not going to get into like a Latour question of <laughs> agency and networks, etc. But you would say like it, it has deep and uncanny bonds with, uh, in some sense, um, material elements, spatial elements, media forms, etc. It routes itself through them in some regard. And crucially, it often does so most potently by uh, by by the work of those who have very little choice about their intimate knowledge of what those processes and spaces might be, and in many ways are thought to have a relation to it that's precisely not that of the planner, uh, you know, the, the the architect, the one who knows better, but but often was treated in some sense as a certain form of quote unquote thoughtless manual work. So in that regard, um, you know. To, to return to the prison, you know, and the different story I want to tell of it, you know, in one sense, this is in part because the, the sort of semantic drift of the word, you know, I actually found that this incredibly early um, appearance of the word, which drifts, you know, the etymology of sabotage has actually nothing to do with the clog being put in the gears. So this is the sort of common representation is the wrong one. It has much more to do vitally with a certain sense of a kind of clattering of a kind of clumsy, right? The, the sort of the sound of the sabot itself, the, this kind of uh, bordering on the threshold of legibility clatter. You know, it's something that that it's it's, it's a question about, and I raised this in, in that text. Um, you know, we can really think of particularly in legacies of, of colonial uh, and sort of uh, racial sort of denigration and, and the sort of condemnation of certain um, kinds of communication or agency as just noise, as just chaos. So for me, um, the rethinking the prison and rethinking it, properly speaking, a sort of um, dialectic or some sort of real um, torsion between, um, you know, attempts at the management and neutralization of human agency and attempts that fundamentally not just 
overcome that, but make use of the very elements designed to, to block that, that for me is the core genesis of sabotage. And so in, in the in, in the specific reference to the prison, you know, the, the central example I, I talk about there is the way in which um, attempts to radically isolate um, those who are incarcerated from one another brings about in some sense a quite literal sort of architecture and infrastructure, particularly linked to sewage in some sense, that can be turned back on itself and can become a sort of set of quite literally resonant tubes through which to speak across distance. You know, that's the core of sabotage. It's like the, the form of intimate knowledge and, and the form of activity that in some sense um, routes itself through the very mechanisms designed to block that in the first place. Uh, and that's the core. So that, that's why for me, I, I begin with the prison um, and I begin in many senses with the question also of, of um, uh, plantation uh, resistance and insurgents, which again um, begins from a threshold in which anything you would call political organizing is is beyond impossible, right? Like the, the very notion, if we if we think of politics as reinforcing a sort of generic set of claims about public presence, accountability, representability, etc., I want to suggest that sabotage um, drifts into being one of the most you know sort of crucial political words of the 20th century, I would argue. Um, but it drifts into that um, out of uh, conditions of struggle that were, were, were fundamentally outside of what politics could even count. You know, it's funny, though, uh, the, the only other instance I can think of uh, uh, political thought having uh, given sabotage such central, uh, uh, such a central role is, uh, you know, I remember Negri's essay from the yeah. 70s, that dominance and sabotage. And also, you know, the way you, you talk about it, the idea of unworking uh, mm-hmm. written about it, 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 it kind of sounds like, you know, it's related to the refusal of work. So how much does it draw from the ideas of your of the time, your take? Yeah. It's a, yeah, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, without going into long sort of personal history of this, you know, the, um, that, that moment, that extended long moment, um, if that's even the right word for moment, but, but of broadly speaking, you know, operaismo to, to autonomia and these other, you know, that sequence is really important for me. Um, you know, it's what I, I worked on during my, my, my doctorate, um, It's, you know, I've translated the work of Romano Alquati, who for me is actually one of the most interesting thinkers, and I can come back to him in a, in a moment as a kind of, not an anti-Negri, but a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, but all to say, you know, those echoes are absolutely present. It, it's one of, you know, there's a few moments globally where you can see um, left movements picking that up. I would say traditions of, of, of insurrectionary anarchism have never been shy about it for good reason. Although I would say that the forms of, of um, sabotage raised in those often um, have much more of a sort of vitalist understanding of the sort of irrepressibility of the human spirit. And I think that's you know politically super important, but it doesn't, um, for me, get at the particularity of this, this form of Uh, again, this this sort of tuning of, of of spaces, this kind of cunning of the the use and misuse of landscape that makes it makes sabotage so central, particularly to anti-colonial insurgents. So, you know, there's histories of, of insurrection or anarchism. I think that picked that up. Um, I think the moment of the the IWW of the Wobblies uh, remains fascinating. You know, and 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 one of the key figures in my histories on this is Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Um, you know, I think that was a moment that that thought really um, openly about it, but was you know actively crushed by by um, you know the 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 criminalization of sabotage, you know, the, the, the attack on the Wobblies is fundamentally linked to this. But then indeed, I think it gets posed in really interesting ways um, 
in a sort of constellation of, of yeah, figures like, like Negri, like Tronti, and I'm not collapsing them, they're, they're radically different, but I think there's a certain question of um, not just the refusal of work, but a taking seriously of the way in which certain forms of what is seen as political action can in fact fundamentally reinforce and play into the very management one is trying to contest, right? You know, sort of Tronti has that sort of question about at what point in some sense does a participation in, well, there's a couple ones, does a participation in, in certain sanctioned forms of protest or expected forms, right, simply normalize or stabilize them? You know, there's also a certain quince, uh, excuse me, question about, you know, a suspicion about the idea of things like sort of... Um, Oh God, you know, the full human, et cetera, these other ones. So, so yeah, it's, it's a big part of it, you know, um, or as a backdrop, even though I think I've really, you know, moved away from at least, you know, the, the fundamental framework, um, in Negri's account in that text and domination sabotage, you know, just a, a text I adore, you know, but weirdly there's another element of Negri's thought, for instance, in, in the writing on Keynes that I've come to actually find more important in this, you know, and, and this is one that I think, really he gets at this in that text as well too but but in the extended work you know really thinking about the way in which um what perhaps supersedes uh in many ways a certain um denial of of something like class conflict what he sees as sort of state denial of that towards a full recognition that it cannot be avoided instead becomes um a complicated forms of management and neutralization you know and and he gives the example here of the, the sort of the fixing or floating of the wage as something like that it becomes a tool in the sort of um negotiation of that the in some sense you'd say the kind of blocking of the moment of refusal uh, right over the moment of the fight, and so for someone like Al Kwati, you know, who, who um, for those who don't know, you know, he's one of the far less famous of that that sort of um, generation. You know, if but I'm not really mistaken, what, uh, is he the person who actually uh, uh, began the practice of worker research, worker investigation? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Conricharco co-research is is really linked to him, and you know, the I've if for those who are interested on 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 viewpoint, I have a long critical. Maybe we can link to this somewhere. A long critical introduction to his work and some translations I've done. Uh, Steve Wright was also doing others, and we were thinking a lot about this. But al is an interesting thinker. Um, he's really, like, minutia-driven. You know, what drives the work are extensive interviews and dialogue. Um, the texts themselves are these very kind of uncompelling, unsexy kind of uh, collages of dense... Blunt, dense yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really not... Um, I mean, Negri has a great verve, and Tronti, brilliant prose stylist. al not, but al for me, poses something, you know, as fundamental as the insights we might um, get from them, you know, and, and it is an, a very different understanding, um, I would say, of the granular processes through which, again, this sort of tension uh, between, let's say, kind of um, neutralization and 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 maybe we could say something like sabotage play out. He uses this incredible um, term in this about a, a gabia flexibile, a flexible cage or kind of flexible prison that's been so important for me. For, and he uses that term to talk about the way in which um, hierarchies are remade in a way so as to sort of take any antagonistic push against them and, and kind of route it back into a refinement of the system. Now, that has a lot to do with, you know, sort of cybernetic thought and his own kind of interest um, interest in something like that. It also, I think, you know, comes um, in and through another moment if we're 
thinking again about the Italian 60s and 70s, you know, equally crucial to me, which is the the lineages around wages for housework uh, and sort of Marxist feminism. And I think the, the far more radical reworking, you know, of some of the questions you get in, in Tronti and Negri, you know, and in large part because of thinking fully about um, the way in which um, the sort of uh, extension of the circuit of value has to also take really seriously the sort of spatial confines of this, the social settings, right? There's a, a kind of full extension of it into thinking about that. And, and you know, in, a, in an old text I, I translated that I remain sort of haunted by, um, this incredible discussion of the idea of using even the kind of stairwell of the building or the moment, you know, sort of between of, of, of women or quote unquote the housewife in this, in this, in this sort of figure, this, this scene, um, kind of the brief moments of passage together as the germ of organizing in a way that doesn't rely upon the assumption of going to the square, going to the piazza, appearing in public. So, you know, as you can tell through all this, I, I, I think I'm um, at core, you know, maybe a thinker who, who's committed to this question of, of thinking about the, the off-screen in some sense, and about the, the the whether that's literally writing about things like 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 cinema and video, or or about political processes, but to attend to the the relegation or kind of production of of a divide that that sets up certain activities um, historically as as not counting. You know, there's another theme that keeps coming back in your work. I mean, uh, one can see your fascination with autonomia on many uh, instances. Uh, the other idea that I see it coming back, which is more explicitly uh, communist, uh, is uh, that you have a, a very outspoken distaste uh, for this idea of a communist paradise lost, you know, <laughs> of you, <laughs> uh, you, you don't like the idea of viewing the exit from capital as something that, uh, that is based on recovery or, you know, promote expanding what is not yet capital. Uh, could you elaborate on that a bit for listeners? I can. That's a that's an astute uh, reading of something that I think you're, you're absolutely right to identify as a kind of preoccupation, although it's not often the thing I, I, I think that I'm setting out to write. Yeah, I am... Um, I feel like my answer to this might be might be rather simple or blunt, but I think there's a way um, there's a way in which a fantasy I would suggest of return or in some sense uh, yeah of a kind of restoration even that I think really runs the risk of discounting both um, the historical construction of an idea of something like human human nature or even a kind of you know sort of bedrock of of, of what the human animal would be I think there's a way in which some of these these notions of, of, of a certain uh, yeah returning paradise or, or sort of um, rediscovery of that, you know, really leaves out um, all the factors that go into producing even that very eventually naturalized category of just what is the human. There are, of course, thinkers, I think, who are, who are um, you know, interesting and, and try to think about that. If you think about like Kluge and Necht um, in Obstinacy in History, um, or um, you think, oh, um, I was just thinking of, oh, of Timp Sebastiano Timpanaro, you know, that's an interesting way to say, can we actually think about something like not biological constants, but some sort of um, deeply, <laughs> deeply situated in the kind of meat of being human that might form certain grounds um, for for resistance or or, or or escape. You know, that's interesting to me. But I'm I'm equally uh, you know committed and perhaps more to 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 someone like Sylvia Winter or others you know involved in the extending consideration of like how does even the kind of category of nothing but human itself get posed. So. 
that's kind of one side of it, you know, and, and on the other hand, maybe this is the, the other face of what you were, you were drawing out in my work, um, around the figure of the wasteland or something like that, you know, for me, um, to fully take on the sense that, um, struggle does not wait for conditions to come. And in some sense, catastrophe is not something to arrive, but is a sort of, um, uh, in many ways, a condition of perspective of where, of, you know, where and how widely one accounts for what, what normalcy is and, and, and what, um, unlivable conditions look like there's a way for me in which i i think also the the promise of return risks really under recognizing uh the depth to which and you'd sort of say like you know the 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 very the very thing we might want to think of as natural itself is already technical it's already sort of suffused with these and so i'm i'm fundamentally more interested in sort of beginning from that ground rather than thinking that there there's something uh, an appeal in some sense to a lost form of of better than right mm-hmm. uh, i'd like to, to try an applied version of the previous question actually i mean now yeah. during lockdown you see people uh, thinking that the after uh, will simply be a return to the before <laughs> and i'm thinking yeah. uh, where, where do you think this, this idea that we get during the pandemic comes from oh yeah well th- i mean no this is this is exactly it right i mean it, it has to do, I would say, and, and back to the sort of technical or sort of technical terms I used to use in that, you know, maybe with a misrecognition between, um, you know, something like crisis and catastrophe. You know, there, there's a way in which, um, I mean, on the one hand, the desire for that is, is obviously like, um, it's a deeply felt one, right? People want to return uh, not everyone, but in, in, in variant ways to, to forms of being together, most simply that are blocked. So uh, it's a huge, you know, it's, we can't, I can give a kind of complex answer, but part of it is just like, we have to account for, you know, the shattering of people's daily life worlds, um, in, in many ways, you know, on the other hand, though, I think that, um, there is a sense, a difficult sense in which it has been posed as exceptional, Right. And, and of course, there's certain degrees to which, you know, obviously it's a condition that most of us haven't lived through. But, you know, if we think, for instance, about um, and, and someone like Rob Wallace has worked really well on this, the epidemiologist, you know, thinking about the the, the fundament and, and Chuang's early texts, um, that amazing uh, text on social contagion back from last February, very strongly recommended. But, you know, there's a way in which the material and literally bacteriological conditions out of which something like this emerge, as we know, are not accidental right? This isn't given by God in some sense. This is the consequence of deforestation and the spread of capital, right? And increasing sort of, you know, forms of often ad hoc industrialization. So, you know, what that means then is that this is not unforeseeable. It's something that that many people have been warning about assiduously for years. It brings about a crisis that, that we can expect, right? In some sense that can unfold in ways that could be predicted. And, to instead treat it in some sense as a kind of bolt from the blue, right? As a sort of impossible, you know, theologically imbued um, event with a capital E or something, I think is to misrecognize um, both the thick context that feed into making it and indeed the ways in which what it will leave transformed often will not align with, to come back to your question, these sort of like a certain sci-fi imaginary. You know, I, I think that the... 
you know, who would have, you know, you know, I was not expecting a year in which I wouldn't see the teeth of strangers in public, right? No, that is a, you know, for a year, that is an extremely particular, um, it's a striking image, you know. Yeah, so this would be a t-shirt, without... actually. No, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I've been thinking, I do want to write something about this, about the, 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 the strange charge of the, 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 the nose and teeth of strangers, you know. But there's a way in which, of course, um, you know, the effects that will have obviously will be long unfolding, but I've been thinking a lot about this year, um, how, when we live through something that, that kind of perhaps feels for many ways, you know, unprecedented for us, we can't help but draw on precisely those kind of reservoirs, the unchosen ones of things like cultural memory, you know? And so to the question, I think there's a way in which like with a steady diet of post-apocalyptic culture in some regard there, it means that a scenario like this, you know, despite the fact that it is for many people just desperate, banal, confining, claustrophobic, all of these other things, it's it, it takes really particular work for us to think about um, how do we produce an adequate cast for understanding what its effects will be that can separate it from, in some sense, all of these other kind of yeah forms of cultural imaginary or cultural memory that have prepped us for thinking about what a global catastrophe or global pandemic would be. Mostly those imaginaries come from things like outbreak films, right? And it's turned out that, in fact, that those kind of images are really inadequate to the sort of slow grinding unfolding of this. So I think there, you know, that's a way also to maybe advocate for, um, for uh, critical work, for artistic work, for literary work, and all these forms that, that really take seriously um, this prospect of the, the, the fabrication and generation of, of imaginaries that are unsupportable in the world. Because, I, you know, this is the same point I would make about um, debates over the quote-unquote efficacy of, let's say, kind of black bloc. And now that feels like an older debate, now that everyone wears masks. <laughs> but, like, you know, these, these sort of, um, you know, attacks, uh, these claims on it being kind of, you know, that quote, unquote, like it's useless, doesn't serve any effects. Think here of the condemnation of riots as well, too. You know, there's a way in which at bare minimum, and they do a lot more than this, but at bare minimum, there is a way in which, you know, that puts into lived image in the world a sense that this is possible, right? You know, the, the police precinct that was burned, you know, in Kenosha is like, that is now something that is thinkable in the world in a different way. And, and so I think that, Long answer to your question, but but in terms of um, this problem of going back to normal, you know, I think for me it opens to this really hard and, and kind of longstanding question about, yeah, about what does it mean to work towards um, the production of a, of a different kind of thinkability, you know? And, and I think to do that often means kind of reaching to really different um, different kind of histories. Maybe as the example I've given to, you know, to listen to the to listen to the sound, um, you know, that people found to the speech that was possible in prisons in spite of everything. <laughs> well, we can only fit one last question very briefly in this sure. conversation, unfortunately. And I, I I meant it to be actually about the fourth Mad Max film and how it's your view uh, on the original <laughs> trilogy but because we owe to the listeners from earlier in this conversation I'll have to make it something else uh, you know I, I see that uh, vision is very central uh, to your work you, I, I think that a, a, a big part of it is about uh, how we visualize or view things uh, and I want to come back to this spectacle of the of the riot and uh, mm. ask you in terms of your upcoming work uh, why fire <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, indeed, yeah, is is with the the title of that again, which 
Um, the title of this book, Why Fire, comes from um, Takuma Nakahira, the remarkable Japanese photographer, um, editor, uh, many other things, but indeed about asking after his own his own sense of the, the inability to imagine um, to imagine revolt, particularly kind of urban rebellion, quote unquote, without it being night and without there being a fire, you know. And so for me, the 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 kind of centrality. Well, I'll give a double answer quickly. You know, one thing would be uh, in terms of this this question of, of vision, um, you know, and, and sort of visibility. You know, I've been really concerned in my work um, increasingly to think precisely about that which is not imaged. Um, and this has become a sort of fundamental question that I've, I've written about is under this notion of a kind of negative archive. How do we reread kind of historical patterns? Um, yeah, of, of, of rebellion, of refusal, et cetera, uh, in terms of what was precisely um, uh, not made into image or not recorded or not written in some regard. And sort of thinking from that allows us, I would suggest, you know, to see kind of in negative the contours of neutralization and blockage that prevent certain forms. So that's kind of one side of it. You know, the other side, I think, that, that opens in a more kind of contemporary way is um, a really difficult uh tension and i have zero i have no answer for this but a difficult tension between on the one hand the way in which um let's say kind of images of revolt in some guard uh the, the fixation on them can come to almost take over the actual um sense of what can be materially achieved by a kind of collective of people in space right i think there's a way in which this obsession on especially in kind of more mainstream versions and counting numbers, how many at the march, the production of images of live streams, et cetera, can really sort of work counter to, I think, the real and surprising possibilities that can be enacted, the, the forms of blockage, the, the forms of, of takeover um, that can happen. So on the one hand, the image is a huge problem. And you run into, you know, like Matsudo Masao, a kind of contemporary of, 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 of Nakahira, you know, poses this question about what point does the sort of camera person put it down and, and, and fight the cops. So, so that's one side. The other side, though, is we have to take, I think, also seriously um, the way in which even these images, which are spectacular, which reinforce notions of sort of spectacular protest and certain forms of it, nevertheless can provide um, kind of vital or resonant echoes um, between situations, between those involved in really different struggles. You know, I think there's a way in which taking very seriously this sort of rising, like the rising of the heart, you know, to be sort of dramatic about it. But I think there's a way in which we all know the feeling of what it is to see a kind of image of a, of a temporary image of, of absolute um, refusal, you know, and, and to take seriously how that allows this kind of chaining together of, of, of moments, of struggles across often really, you know, radically different scenarios. And that can also lead to like a profusion of tactics. You know, if we think about the laser pointer in the last couple of years, you know, that, that has become a sort of really important, um, not just a tool in actual kind of contexts of, of, you know, sort of street fighting, but also something that produces a certain kind of aesthetic and image that now begins to kind of crisscross and be taken up in other moments. And so, you know, the image, the, the image of revolt for me or the revolting image, you know, is something that, that names both, um, a problem of the absolute centrality of mechanisms that profit off the circulation of those, no matter what we think we're circulating them for. And on the other hand, something that uh, we have to account for uh, as a sort of vital um, echo between those who, who may not be in touch, a sort of spark between them. And I want to always take that as seriously.
<laughs> I'll save the Mad Max question for uh, next instance. <laughs> I would Ev- love that. That would be great. <laughs> Evan Calder Williams, thank you for joining us at the Archivelago. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>